Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. We've got a very, very interesting topic um, for you on this one. It's something that I have been fascinated by and been puzzled by and been troubled by, I suppose, as a vet and a a wildlife conservationist for quite a long time. And um, we're going to be talking about the badger cull and bovine TB um, in particular and um, why badgers are kind of in the firing line in kind of treating and uh, controlling this disease of cattle and obviously it is a highly emotive and contentious topic for people and it's one which really divides opinion and uh, I think specifically the government's policy to cull badgers as part of that effort to eradicate a a disease of cattle um, really does kind of uh, get people's backs up and there's been a recent uh, move by the government to expand the badger cull zone when there was a hope I suppose that um, the, the culling strategy would be starting to kind of um, roll down. And we've got two really, really well-informed guests tonight, and um, I'm very happy that they've come to join us. Uh, First up, we have James Russell, who is the very newly appointed president of the British Veterinary Association. And James has over 17 years experience as a vet working in mixed practice, as well as a graduate diploma in production animal and livestock medicine. So he's very well qualified to talk about the position of the veterinary profession on eradicating bovine tuberculosis. We've also got Dominic Dyer, who is the CEO of the Badger Trust, a charity which aims to promote and enhance the welfare, conservation and protection of badgers in the UK. So I think we're well placed to really tease apart um, this complex topic. Um, As I said, it is a topic I've struggled to reconcile and and fully decide my own personal viewpoint on some aspects of it. I'm a vet like James and I'm a passionate conservationist like Dominic. So what we'll aim to do is try and give a level of knowledge to to you guys, the listeners, about what is a complex issue, clarify the facts around TB, uh, the cattle and the badger situation, and discuss and debate the concerns on both sides of the, the badger cull debate. So James, Dominic, thank you so much for joining. I'm really um, excited to, to explore this topic. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Great. So um, first up, I guess um, it would be good just to get from your point of view a little bit of background on uh, your involvement and your kind of interest in this topic and, um, you know, why why you're here tonight. So maybe we'll start with you, Dominic, if that's OK. Yeah, no, by all means. Um, as you say, I'm currently you know, chief executive of the Badger Trust. Um, my background actually is, is not wildlife conservation. You know, I came into the government uh, civil service ministry of agriculture at the age of 17 many years ago. Um, and sort of learn government from the inside, really, working across a wide range of areas from animal welfare, from trade policy, Brussels related work, um, but also in, in areas of livestock to a degree and, and, and areas around food manufacturing and farming. So, you know, I, I sort of learned a lot during my young part of my career in, in terms of policy and agriculture and food areas. I then went on to work in the Food and Drink Federation for eight years. Spent a lot of my time traveling different parts of the world, understanding farming and food production systems, 
and food manufacturing issues, um, went through BSE and foot and mouth and all those issues as well, and then went on to become chief executive of the Crop Protection Association for nearly five years and a board member of the European Crop Protection Association. So spent a lot of my time dealing with the plant science industry, food security, and all the issues around genetic modification and plant breeding uh, that remain important but also controversial today. So I'm very used to working with government ministers and agriculture, food-related areas, and senior officials in in the NFU and other bodies as well. Um, I left the, the work in the crop protection industry in 2012 to become a campaigner in the environment field in particular. Um, badgers was one of the issues that made me want to get more involved, but also the international ivory issue. Spent quite a lot of time in Africa and concern about what was happening with poaching. So I wanted to take my skills of communication, lobbying, campaigning, learnt in industry and politics and put it into wildlife conservation. So today I'm chief executive of the Badger Trust. I'm also wildlife advocate and policy advisor for the Born Free Foundation. I'm a lay member of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons Veterinary Nurses Council, so I'm, I'm very much involved in the veterinary industry as well. And I sit on the board of Wildlife and Countryside Link, which is the umbrella group for all the major wildlife conservation NGOs in Britain. And the only th final thing to say is that I actually wrote a book on badgers called Badger to Death in 2016, yeah. which is about the people and politics of this, because I've, I've sort of learned so much and been on such a journey that I thought I needed to write a book as well. So there you go. That's yeah. me in a, in a nutshell. Great. Good, good nutshell. It's uh, it's one of the books on my long, long reading list at the moment. I keep accumulating books at the moment, but um, I will get around to it for sure. Thanks for that. Um, what about yourself then, James? Uh, thank you, Sean. Yeah, so I, I graduated uh, as a vet in 2002. So I was uh, one of the sort of final year students who was sent off um, into the into the face of foot and mouth as a you know as a student to try and help bring that under control. And the reason I mentioned that in a conversation about TB is that I then came out and began uh, working as a vet and as a farm animal vet um, in an environment where we had that hiatus in TB testing, and we were able to see the impact that that uh, that had that drop off in testing had uh, on the incidence of TB over the following few years. So you know I came up and. Uh, spent a huge majority of my of my time in practice working in Staffordshire and Derbyshire and you know sadly over that time I saw TB creep ever uh, further through that patch from the from the sort of southwest up to the northeast of the patch that I was working in and recognized that you know really um, at that stage as a vet you know what I was doing was simply testing for this disease and demonstrating where it had now got to and not actually treating it as I would any other disease that I was asked to tackle on farm and as a you know as a, as a veterinary surgeon and think about you know what's going on here what are the causes of this why is it spreading in the way that it is and uh, you know what can I do to help reduce the risk of it of it coming onto your farm or you know a, a particular farm and that really sort of prompted my interest in it as a condition. And so, you know, I've been involved with TB policy for a number of years now. Firstly, as a, as a vet in practice, I uh, came and joined the BPA's veterinary policy group in 2008 and uh, was instrumental there in um, uh, helping to develop our initial or, or you know, that uh, iteration of our TB policy. And, you know, it really sort of spiraled from there for me, the interest in this as a disease and how we might get hold of it to the point that, you know, I became British Cattle Veterinary Association's TB representative around the time of the Godfrey Review and came and gave evidence to, to Godfrey on that and sat on the TB eradication uh, uh, action group. I'm not sure that's what their A stands for, but TB anyway. Uh, and uh, 
work also with the TB advisory service, both as somebody going out on farm, delivering those sort of bespoke plans for farmers to help reduce their risks of, of TB getting onto their farm, but also as one of their technical uh, board as well. So thinking about uh, how we actually put a, a process in place which can be helpful. Yeah. Uh, lastly, then got involved with the BVA's uh, TB policy group, firstly as the BCVA rep and then subsequently as the, the BVA officer responsible for this. And we've very recently released our updated TB position, which I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to delve into during this evening. But I think the sort of headline on that is that we've um, tried to look much more holistically at this whole uh, disease process, both in terms of where is the science taking us in terms of the cattle factors, the badger factors, and any other sort of interactions that may be going on. But also, and I think importantly, the sort of social science and the sort of behaviours that we see going on uh, on farms between farmers, vets and the interaction then with the state that perhaps don't always lead to the outcomes that we would want in terms of being able to control disease. Yeah, good stuff. And uh, congratulations on your newly appointed president role. Thank you very much indeed, Sean. Yeah, no worries. So I think to start off, obviously, we've got a quite a diverse uh, range of listeners and some people may be very aware of of this topic and some people might not know much about it at all. So I think it'd be good to start maybe with you, James, laying out what is bovine TB and why do we need to eradicate it? Absolutely. And bovine TB is caused by uh, mycobacterium and, you know, mycobacteria have been around just forever, really, it, it would seem. And, you know, they are just phenomenally well adapted to sustaining themselves and to replicating. And, you know, the other mycobacterium that we deal with frequently in cattle is is Yoni's disease. And as anyone who's ever approached trying to manage that in cows will know, know, it's it's quite fiendish to test for in the uh, preclinical and early, early disease stage. And uh, but once you have tested for it, once you have identified that it's there, you know, there's a difference between animals who are infected and animals who are infectious. And I think that that makes it quite um, a special class of, uh, of, of organism, if you like, that it can be there, that it can inhabit the, um, you know, the mammalian host for as long as it does and replicate in the way that it does whilst actually you know not shedding from that animal and then something will happen which sort of flips it over into becoming an infectious shedding animal yeah and at that point you know that's obviously where we begin to see spread we're interested in it as as vets for a number of reasons you know i mean you 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 look at um uh you know, look back in time to before we had uh, TB testing and before we had the sort of TB order and you were seeing clinical TB in cattle. And, you know, it's not a nice disease to suffer from. You know, it's a wasting disease, a disease which, uh, you know, damages the respiratory system as well. And uh, fortunately, we don't see much. Well, I've never seen any clinical disease in cattle now. And I think that's a, a testament really to just how um, effective we've been at developing tests, which have uh, identified it early enough that we're able to sort of remove those animals before they become clinically infected. But it is still a zoonosis. And we can say, well, you know, pasteurization of milk and all the rest of it has kind of dealt with that. Well, to a large extent it has, but, you know, 1% of all of the TB seen in humans in the country uh, each year is caused by embovis, is caused by cattle TB. And that predominantly tends to affect those people who you might expect to be at high risk of that. So perhaps people who are standing in parlour pits, milking cows, um, you know, and coming into contact with 
body fluids on a regular basis. But, uh, you know, we only hold that at bay um, thanks to the pasteurization, but thanks to the sort of testing regime and the control uh, processes that we have. So I've heard it said a number of times, well, you know, why don't we just stop testing for this? Why don't we just leave it be? It's not causing clinical disease and it's not really a major problem in humans. Yeah. And the answer to that is it would very soon become so if we if we simply ignored it and let it do its own thing. Okay. And so there's welfare impacts for cattle if it's left unchecked. There's transmission to human uh, impact and there's also obviously economic uh, reasons for, for controlling it. Very much so. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And Dominic, um, maybe you could tell us like about the how badgers are implicated here. What is the uh, the reason for badgers being a big part of this uh, picture in trying to eradicate this disease? Well, it's quite interesting, really. When I was writing Badgers at F and I was looking back at this period, you know, there was a great debate about badger protection in the 1950s and 60s because we had such widespread persecution of the species. You know, you used to have certain you know, segments of the population that used to sort of dig out badgers and, and put dogs down badger sets for their leisure time. And this was widespread and it was to be found in all parts of the country and people would travel widely to do it. And, and you started to see the first badger protection groups established in the sort of 60s and the early 70s in different parts of the country. And these were, you know, local people that had a passion and interest in badgers and, and literally sat on top of badger sets trying to protect them from the diggers. And, and, and this led to pressure in Parliament and then there was a private members bill and, you know, in the early 70s, you, you got the first piece of legislation that actually gave badgers legal protection. Uh, and that's since been enhanced by the Wildlife and Countryside Act and the Protection of Badgers Act to the point where this is one of the most protected species in terms of legal status in the country, but also remains one of the most demonized and persecuted species as well. And it's almost unfortunate for the badger because by the time it got that protection legally in the early 1970s, Ministry of Agriculture vets um, actually started to do some tests on badgers and found that they did find TB in a number of the animals. And this was a time when the cattle industry was changing. You know, we've left the European community after a long, painful few years. But in the early 70s, clearly, we'd just become members of the European community. And there were subsidies and money going into dairy farms to increase the level of production and the size of herds. And it was becoming more industrial as a business. And that's not a surprise that we started to see a rise in, in TB as a result. You know, TB is spread primarily between cows held inside for long periods of time in damp conditions, similar to humans to a degree in how we spread the disease. And clearly, it's a spillover disease. I use the phrase industrial Pollution to explain how it sort of spills out of industrial livestock into the wildlife and, and domestic animals. And it's not just badgers, it's foxes, it's rats, it's stoats, it's weasels, it's, you know, dogs and cats and other animals can get infected by this. But clearly the badger was identified early on as being a key problem, a reservoir, as, as we widely are led to believe in, in, in discussions on this. And as such could not only pass the disease between, you know, different groups of badgers, but could then pass the disease back to cattle. And that was where the problem started. You know, we, we've gone around in a big, big circle since the early 1970s, where there have been various methods used from gassing, snaring and shooting badgers, you know, at certain times, rather in a, a sort of reactive way, where there was believed to be outbreaks where the badger was blamed to, you know, more controlled culling as you might sort of look at it from today's perspective but there's been a huge amount of money spent a huge amount of suffering and a large number of badgers have died over the last 45 
plus years. Um, and I would say not really to prove that it's been beneficial in terms of dealing with this disease. We still have this disease in our cattle herds today. And, you know, sh you know, James was right. You know, a key issue for me when I was working between the Ministry of Agriculture and then joining the Food and Drink Federation was foot and mouth. And I learned, you know, from that exercise that there were some terrible decisions taken, in my view, about, you know, basically lifting controls on TB uh, to restock farms where large numbers of cattle obviously have been killed as a result of, of the foot and mouth outbreak. Millions have been destroyed and we had to spend billions compensating farmers and rural businesses as a result. Um, but we moved those cattle too quickly. We didn't test, um, you know, and the chief vet at the time warned Tony Blair and Nick Brown, the agriculture minister, Jim Scudamore, the chief vet, that this was going to be a problem. And I'm afraid he wasn't listened to. And you could see that massive rise in TB in the herds from under 5,000 in 2001 to over 28,000 18 months later. And as James will know, that, that, that figure has not dropped significantly since that period. People will argue with me as to whether, you know, the spread of the disease was controlled quickly as those cattle were moved. But the problem in the herd has remained. And it was a, a problem that came about from poor policy from government and also from the National Farmers Union and the food industry that I was working in at the time as well. Yeah, yeah. Would you agree with those points, James, do you think? Uh, up to a point, I think I would agree. You know, I mean, I think I've, I've made the point a number of times in, in farmers meetings that, you know, we, we suddenly see the spoligotypes, so not a full uh, gene sequencing, but certainly, a you know, a family, a group of, um, of, of mycobacterium goat bovis appearing at different parts of the country after we repopulated after foot and mouth and you know I've, I've often made the very flippant comment that you know, I didn't see a badger driving up the M6 at that point to take that disease up to Cumbria. Um, yeah. And, and so, of course, we absolutely accept that that was a big part of, of helping to seed the disease into different parts of the country. Um, and what Dominic says, of course, is absolutely right, that um, the evidence from the Downs paper last year is that, um, you know, uh, spread within species, both within a cattle population and within a badger population, is is far more prevalent and far more um, likely than spread between those two populations. But what it also went on to, to point out was that spread from a badger to a cow was roughly 10 times more likely than to spread the other way. Um, and I think that's where the idea of, of uh, badgers as a reservoir uh, has sort of developed, really, isn't it? Is that um, we know that if we have an infected badger population which lives in close proximity to um, a susceptible cattle population, uh, then there are uh, potential interaction points and i think what's um developed in our in our sort of understanding of that over over the years has been that you know the, the idea that we might have you know a badger roaming around a field rubbing noses with a cow is just not feasible you know the the, the behavior of the two species would very rarely if ever allow that but what we do see are these indirect interactions so you know we're thinking there about perhaps sharing a water trough or um you know and uh, we all know that badgers are very inquisitive creatures. They might go and investigate a badger latrine out in, uh, in a hedgerow. And also um, at times of, of some hardship for badgers. You know, I, me I remember uh, in the summer of, I think, probably 2018, we had that very warm, dry summer. And I was doing quite a number of TB advisory service visits during that summer. And as part of that, we were often uh, looking at, uh, at badger feces. My children thought it was a very strange way of me earning a living, but that's what I was doing. And, you know, trying to identify what they were feeding on at the time. 
And there are a number of foodstuffs in there which you might not necessarily have thought would be, you know, a badger's primary uh, choice of food, but demonstrated that they were coming into sometimes quite close proximity to cows. So I think one particular farm I was at where the only potential source for the um, for the grain that was being found in the feces was some quite poorly made straw that was being used for bedding in uh, in a calf house. And, you know, two, three, four fields away from this calf house, we were finding feces that was rammed with this grain and indeed with, with stalks of the straw as well. So, you know, especially when they're, when they're hungry, they will go and make those close interactions. So we know they're making the close interactions. We know they have the capacity to spread it to the cattle. And therefore, I think I am comfortable with the description of the badger as a, as a reservoir and disease in that context. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what's being done to eradicate the disease in cattle. Um, there are admittedly, you know, problems of that system with regards to the type of testing that's done with biosecurity issues and cattle movements. Um, so James, maybe if you tell us a little bit about that and then Dominic will, will have your views on that. Certainly. So, I mean, the, you know, the mainstay of this is, is a, still the, sin, the intradermal uh, skin test, which is a hundred year old test and has many people who will um, you know, will call it out for being a very challenging test to administer. Um, I go back to the fact that it was first developed at a time when cows were tied up by the neck and therefore accessing the uh, the proximal third of their neck to inject them was was far easier than it is when uh, perhaps they're moving backwards and forwards in a crush. Okay. But it's the test that we have and is the mainstay of our um, surveillance system. And as a herd level surveillance, I think we can be very confident with it. Uh, the published data says that it has about an 80% sensitivity. There's some discussion about exactly how good that might be with some studies suggesting perhaps nearer 50%. But regardless, you know, on a herd level basis, if we've got disease in the herd, you would expect that you would detect it, given that the restrictions that are imposed on herds are imposed on a herd uh, at, at a herd level rather than an individual level. It's the herd that we're interested in here. The reason that it's such a great surveillance test, of course, is because it's also very, very specific. So we think that roughly one in 5,000 positives might be false positive. Uh, understanding, of course, that you know negative predictive value and positive predictive value are affected also by um, in, uh, underlying prevalence of disease. But somewhere in that one in 5,000 is, is where we're at as a specificity for the test. So, you know, we're not picking up huge numbers of false positives and we're probably picking up the herds which are infected. Whether or not we can then translate that into saying with small numbers of animals, half a dozen or 10 animals who are being tested as a pre-movement test and feel that we have the confidence in the results on those individual animals, I think is a fair challenge. And so, you know, one of the calls that's within our uh, policy document is to say, let's have a, a bit of a rethink about how we use some of the other supplementary testing um, modalities as well, both the existing ones. So people talk about the, the blood test, the gamma test, um, which has a higher sensitivity. The trade-off is its lower specificity, but also picks up potentially a slightly uh, different cohort of cattle when you um, apply that as a test. So by applying the two together, you can really boost your sensitivity for detecting uh, both the herds that are infected, but also the individuals within those herds. So, yeah, good stuff. 
yeah, that that would be the kind of basis of our surveillance testing. And, uh, you know, I think we, we, we're really excited at the moment to think about the future for cattle controls because, you know, we, we hear that this cattle vaccine is now in its sort of safety trial stage. Now, you know, when I graduated uh, in 2002, a cattle vaccine was 10 years away. And um, 10 years ago, it was still 10 years away. And now it's, uh, you know, it's a handful of years away, hopefully. And I think that's really exciting. The thing that's held it back is being able to have um, a DIVA test, a test which would distinguish between infected and vaccinated animals, uh, and being allowed to apply that test uh, as part of our surveillance system. Yeah. So the trials are sort of ongoing together for those two. But I think if we can see that come to fruition, I don't believe there is any platinum bullet when it comes to solving uh, the issue of TB in cattle. It's such a complex disease. It's going to be achieved by getting lots of things right. But this would certainly be or certainly has the potential to be another thing that we could get right would be vaccinating cattle and using the DIVA test to be able to identify them. Yeah, great. And Dominic, would you agree with James there that we can be confident in in kind of the test, current testing and surveillance system? Well, I just quickly want to pick up on some of the issues on badgers and then come on to cattle because James, you know, yeah. made some quite clear statements of where he viewed, you know, badgers being a reservoir of disease. And I, I wanted to sort of put my views forward. I think your listeners need to, sure to get a balance in this debate to be clear on that point. It's terribly yeah. important. Um, you know, if you look at what DEFRA states or the chief scientists and the policymakers in DEFRA over the years in terms of the percentage of badgers, and if you look at randomized badger culling trial and other areas of research over the years, generally around five, percent of infections are believed to go from badger to cattle. So if we, if we take that figure, but then you have a, a debate about so-called amplification, that once it gets into a cattle herd, it's amplified through the herd because of the fact that these animals are close to each other, they spread it, and it could be amplified up to 50%. So it's, that's the argument being used. It might be that the badger doesn't pose a huge threat to cattle, but once the disease gets in by that reservoir, it causes significant problems for cattle herds, and that's why it needs to be destroyed. Um, I would question that, to be quite frank, in terms of the percentage of disease spread. I would also question some of what James was saying about badger and cattle interaction. Um, you know, we have seen in recent years the use of modern technology to, to satellite collar um, and to, you know, basically get a better understanding of movements of badgers in Northern Ireland, the Republic, and in England as well. Um, and we found increasingly that these animals are shy nocturnal and do generally avoid cattle in pasture areas and, and farmyards. I've no doubt, you know, as James was saying, that there are areas of interaction and there's more that needs to be done at a biosecurity farm gate level to prevent that. But I think this idea that badgers are regularly interacting with cattle and that it's their feces and urine that's sort of being ending up on the ground and the cattle are coming along and munching it is causing the disease spread. There's not a lot of good scientific evidence to show that. And also we lack field trials. You know, when I wrote Badger to Death, I wanted to look back and try and find where the evidence was that badgers were spreading TB to cattle. The only field experiment I could find was in the mid-1970s with the CVL at Weybridge Central Veterinary Laboratory. And scientists basically took badgers that were injected effectively with TB at a high rate. So they knew they were excreting, they were high-risk animals. And they put them into pens with calves that clearly weren't diseased, young calves. And these animals were literally in a sealed, confined area for an extended period of time, defecating and urinating on each other. And yes, in time, but it took months in this experiment for the disease to spread from the badger to the cow. But it did in the end over two, three, four, five months in different periods of time where it was being looked at. But the, the scientists concerned did accept that this wasn't really fit for purpose. And this 
is something that we often come back to. You have to look at the natural farmed environment, how animals interact. So you, in a very artificial experiment like that, we found it was actually quite difficult for the badger to spread the disease to cattle. So in the, in the, in the more natural farmed environments, it would be even more difficult for it to happen. But there is a sort of belief within the farming industry, and I think to a degree it's reinforced by the veterinary livestock industry as well, that the badger is definitely to blame, and there can be no question about this. You know, we're not really even looking at the, the spread of the disease in, in other areas. You know, there used to be monitoring that MAF and DEFRA did, looking at other species and the level of TB in deer or foxes or rats or other species, domestic dogs and cats. That has stopped a number of years ago. All the resource has been looking at the badger. The blame has been sort of put at the badger's door. And I, I think, to be quite frank, a lot of that is unfair. It's not based on good scientific field research. A lot of modeling is done. A lot of then estimates are made about where the disease is coming from. Genome sequencing and other technologies are being used to say, well, this must come from the badger in this area and it's infected the cattle and we have to take action against it. But a lot of that modeling, a lot of that mapping is open to question. There seems to be quite a lot of political motivation at certain times um, in terms of the use of study data as well. You know, the down study data, you know, does, to be quite frank, in my view, have more holes than a Swiss cheese because you can review a period of time where cattle-based measures were being put in to the cull areas alongside culling. And then estimate that, you know, the badger culling has delivered a significant reduction in the, in the disease level in cattle. But you can't take out the cattle-based measures that have gone in alongside it. And also what you can't do is then sort of take into account that, you know, if you look to Gloucestershire and Somerset, where there were significant reductions that Downs found in the study data published in 2017, um, that in Dorset in the same period, there's actually a small increase in, 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 the, in the level of TB in cattle, despite intensive culling that had taken place in that county. And then Gloucestershire, the year after that data study was completed, we saw a 130% increase in bovine TB in cattle, as obviously as culling was continuing. So there are questions about study data, and there are questions then about how politicians headline that study data and then use it, as do the National Farmers Union, and I'm afraid in some case livestock vets as well, to basically state the case and justify the expansion of the policy. So I would always say that we have to be very cautious about the argument that badgers are a major reservoir for the disease. We have to be very cautious about the percentage levels that are given for spread of the disease and very cautious about any mapping data or peer-reviewed data even that is put out there to say that badger culling is working. And to be fair to some of the academics involved in these studies, they always put caveats with it that actually, please do not read too much into this study data. It's a snapshot. This is a rapidly moving, changing disease. It's complex, as James has said. And you can't take the data we have and justify an expansion of the policy saying this is definitely working. But that's not what politicians do. They want the headline figures, and that's what we hear, and that's what are used to justify the policy. So that, that sort of gives you a flavor for my view on, on the badges. If we move to the cattle situation, you know, I think I would welcome a lot of what's gone on in recent years. And I think, you know, fair dues to James and his colleagues in the, in the livestock veterinary industry. I think we all know that there are certain elements of the, the cattle testing system, the skin test, that are not, you know, fit for purpose still. There are a lot of cattle that do not show up on those disease method controls. And, and farmers come to me often and, and are concerned about the fact that their cattle are being destroyed when they believe that they're not actually with the disease. Or, you know, so you, you get a situation where, that disease, 
you know, can go in the herd without being detected, even when a farmer thinks that he's clear. Um, I think gamma interferon, PCR, and all these other testing systems that are being applied, as James has said, can make a significant difference in lowering that gap to identify these animals and root them out of the herd, and we welcome it. But I do think at times the government have been too slow to deploy that new technology, too slow to provide funding and support for farmers to make use of it as well. Um, in terms of the, um, the breakthrough, the University of Surrey breakthrough, the diva test yes james is absolutely right it's a long time coming i do think there's been some politics in that as well i think at certain times you know the astral farmers union could have made a real clear play for pushing forward with vaccine development and they didn't and i think part of that was concerns about losing export markets you know i was in math at time of bse work through foot and mouth. I know how difficult it is and complex and yeah. problematic if you suddenly lose third country markets outside of Europe and beyond. Um, and I think there's always been a worry that if you inject a cow, you know, against TB, it's going to cause significant trading problems for the farming industry. On that basis, I think the NFU left it alone to a degree, didn't push government to pursue it in the way that they should. I'm pleased to see that things are moving forward. I think it's good that we've got a trial at last in England and Wales. It's good that we have a diva test that looks as if it can work. It's great to see a British university pioneering mm -hmm. that research and development, that science-based approach. And I, I do think that's important. And finally, you know, on the on the vaccination of badgers side, we'll probably talk a little bit about that going forward a bit more. But I do think there's good scientific peer-reviewed research the government has. It does show that if you get to a badger and you vaccinate it with BCG vaccine, that you can reduce the risk of an animal without the disease getting it by about 70%. And that can be passed down to newborn cubs. That does mean you have to trap them every year and vaccinate them. But we're trapping them to shoot them at the moment. And it's cheaper to, to vaccinate than it is to cull with all the policing, legal defense and equipment costs the government are currently occurring. It's got far more popular support. And I think the tragedy was that vaccination wasn't developed as an alternative non-lethal intervention method and given to farmers alongside culling when this policy was developed and applied in 2013. If it was with all the government research backing it up and communicating that to farmers, I think we'd see far more significant levels of badger vaccination now. Uh, and that would be a good thing. Yeah. Let's talk about, definitely let's talk about badger vaccination in a little bit, but to go backwards um, some to some degree, um, James, how, how does badger culling fit into this overall strategy? We've talked about, you know, the, the evidence for them being reservoirs of disease. We've talked about the possible routes of transmission between badgers and cattle and, and vice versa. Um, what, you know, what is the government's strategy or what's the logic behind it? Is it a case of um, if you have a farm in a TB prone area or a TB area and um, with high incidence, that if you have badgers on your land, it's just not a risk worth taking if you're going to become TB clear? What's the rationale be be behind the government saying back, you know, decades ago, badger culling has to be an absolute uh, strong part of this strategy? I think, um, you know, in answering that, I would just like to reflect some of the comments that Dominic just made about, um, you know, the reporting of this and the politicising of the reporting of it. And, um, you know, some of those I find slightly alarming because, um, you know, I've worked with farmers for a long time and I, I'm sure that all of them would say, you know, if there was a, a a simple, even a complex solution to resolving uh, the scourge of TB on their farms that they would take it. I, I find it very challenging to believe that there's been a, a, a deliberate 
uh, effort to maintain and sustain TB as a, as a disease in the country by avoiding taking some of the steps that we could have taken to, um, to bring it under control. I think, you know, the science is, is catching up with, with, with what we can do in terms of DIVA testing, but also in terms of the reporting of this. And, you know, I've, I've already mentioned spoligotypes and, you know, you can you can colour map the country and uh, look at where those spoligotypes are prevalent, and break them down a little bit further than that as well into a subset. And um, you know, we we develop what we call a home range for each different uh, family of TB. And what I find uh, interesting is that you will find that same home range TB in both infected badges. Um, and we've seen the evidence that's come out from Wales just today of their latest sort of um, breakdown of their figures of, of the um, uh, the Badger Found Dead surveys, which, you know, which suggests that in the some of the high risk areas of Wales, you know, up to a quarter of the badgers that they were finding um, were, were, were infected with TB, yet much, much lower in the lower risk areas of the country down to um, two and a half percent and even less than one percent in one of the very low risk areas. I entirely accept that. But in those high risk areas, we were finding roughly a quarter of those badges uh, infected with TB. And when you look at the sort of, um, you know, the family of TB that's in them, it tends to be of that home range because that's where they're existing. And it really is a helpful tool that when you get onto farm, because if you've been able to identify a reactor and um, assess what, what spoligotype of TB has affected it and work out whether that is home range or not, it gives you a clue. No more than that. I wouldn't put it any more strongly than that. But it gives you a clue as to whether that's a, um, a disease which has been caught by that animal whilst it's been on or around that farm, or whether potentially it's something that's been brought in um, you know, through, through a cattle uh, transport. And that's a bit of a kind of pricey, really, to me saying, therefore, you know, where we do have evidence that we've got these high levels of infection in badgers that's of the same spoligotype of disease that we're seeing in, in cattle, to simply look at the cows and say, well, let's continue to tackle the disease in cows, but forget about what's happening out there in the wildlife population, you know, would strike me as being, you know, trying to fight this battle with one arm tied behind your back, really, because... Mm. You know, you you are you're reducing the disease in one part of the population, whilst not reducing it in this other, both susceptible and shedding population as well. Um, yeah. And as Dominic says, you know, we don't get those direct interactions. So I, I said that in my my sort of comments on that as well. But we do recognise these indirect interactions as being a very p- powerful way for that disease to spread between those species. And so, James, to to Dominic's point about you know maybe badgers being a bit of a scapegoat or the real focus of um, the, the problem. What what about other wildlife species? Do we have data on the incidence of TB or its transmission to cattle from other wildlife? I think it is a very fair challenge to say that it is not as um, as well studied as it is within the badger. But I think what we are also able to see is that um, the sort of anecdotal evidence, if I can put it that way, um, is 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 not supportive of the large reservoir of infection and there i'm thinking about things like um, you know reports from deer stalkers of uh, lesions in in um, in wild deer 
And I'm thinking about things that we, we do recognise as being a risk, such as the wild boar population down in the New Forest, where we recognise that there is potentially a challenge there. So I would, I would absolutely support Dominic in saying that's somewhere where there is an opportunity for further research to see uh, what's going on with, with other wildlife species. But I think all the evidence that has been brought forward has demonstrated that those species behave more, and, and, and I don't think there are any absolutes in TV, but they behave more like sort of dead end hosts uh, and potentially a spillover hosts than they do as reservoirs and active shedders of infection. And that's where cattle and badgers um, and to a slightly uh, different extent cats uh, can can come into the mix in that way. So really, you know, yes, the rationale for why would we, um, you know, why would we take the intervention of culling at that point? And that's one side of it, is we know that we've got this infected population out there. The other side of it is that we know that that population has grown quite considerably um, over the past 20, 30 years. And there's a number of uh, reasons for that postulated. You know, one is, um, you know, it's protected status. Now, I'm not sure I entirely go with that because um, the, the timings don't kind of work for it. The one which I perhaps have more um, sympathy for as, as a postulated theory is that this is perhaps to do with the increase in growing maize on and around farms as a feedstuff. Um, one of the things that you can do is sort of map the areas of the country that we grow maize and map the areas of the country where we have a higher badger uh, population density and see there's a very strong correlation between them. So um, that in itself throws up some challenges about um, whether, you know, as, as, uh, as farming uh, systems, we've sort of unwittingly made this challenge even greater for ourselves by uh, enabling that population to develop over time. But with whatever the cause is, the outcome is that we've got more animals around who are infected with um, with TB and do have the capacity to spread it to um, to the livestock. And I think to draw a simple distinction and say, well, we could either shoot them or vaccinate them at that point. Um, misses the point a little bit, really, because we know um, from the studies that were done um, with the randomised badger call trial that there is a demonstrable impact of culling badgers. Now, I absolutely appreciate that that initial trial didn't necessarily draw out all of those um, uh, benefits. And, and indeed, you know, by the end of it, it was thought that that perhaps hadn't been helpful. But when you continue to study that data, it was able to be demonstrated that it did have a lasting effect in the areas where the badges have been called. And just to be clear for any of our listeners who, who weren't familiar with that trial, the, the problem was that within the call zone, you saw a reduction in the uh, incidence of TB in cattle. But in the ring around the edge of that, a two kilometre ring around the edge of that, where we know that there would have been perturbation of the, cattle po of the badger population, you actually saw a rise in the incidence of TB in cattle. And and that was where the confusion came, really. They said, well, this has not had the desired impact. But what happened if you watched it over the next few years was that that perturbated area fell back to the sort of baseline numbers of, um, of, of cases, whereas the benefit within the cool ring in the centre was retained for much longer. And um, James, just to cut in there, when you sure. say perturbated area, it's badgers dispersing because of increased disturbance due to the cull caused an initial spike in... In 
transmission. Is that right? Yeah, thank you for clarifying that, Sean. And yeah, perturbation, I mean, it, it, they're a fascinating species. I mean, I, I certainly don't want to come across in this uh, discussion as, as anti-badgy. You know, I'm not at all. I find them an absolutely fascinating species, a lovely species to observe and to, and to understand. And um, yeah, part of their... Um, uh, appeal for me is just the incredibly complex reproductive system that they have where you know we'll have a sort of alpha female who will be the one who uh, predominantly will have cubs uh, in in a you know in a set and you know the the delayed um gestation that they can have to make sure that you know those cubs are being boarded in a short-term environment and all those sorts of things and where we get disturbance in that where we get disturbance in either the alpha female or some of the breeding males and um, you end up with animals moving between sets and obviously that has the capacity to increase um you know interactions between them be that simply moving in together or more likely to be an increase in sort of fighting for boundaries as well so you know that that's what we mean by that yeah but the what we've got with vaccination is a situation where there is very good evidence now that vaccinating badgers as dominic has said can have a beneficial effect on the badger population there is only one small scale study at the moment on what impact that has on the cattle population and i don't even really want to uh, go anywhere near it as a study because even its authors said um, we shouldn't be over interpreting this it demonstrated that it didn't hugely uh, benefit the uh, cattle population in that study but we acknowledge within our paper and, and, and we call for it as one of our uh, research aims that we need to have a better understanding of what the benefit can be for the cattle population of vaccinating badgers because we don't understand it well enough yet and that's why we say you know that we can't just say vaccinating and culling are equivalents yeah. we, we don't know that yet and is there a uh, consensus that if we're go if we're going to call as part of the strategy, you almost have to go hard or go home. There's no point doing a half baked attempt at culling because you won't see the true benefit of culling as a strategy. Are we kind of in this position where the government either has to prove or disprove the value of a, of a cull in eradication or not do it at all? I think that's absolutely right, Sean. And what we see, you know, when we when you see the sort of licensing criteria that are put around a cull, it's about being able to access, you know, 90 odd percent of the land within that area and being able to do this in a very intensive timescale and do it over a wide area so that you maximize that space in the middle of the donut, if I can put it in that terminology. Um, and, and effectively, of course, what that does is to minimise the impact of that two kilometre ring around the outside where we know we might expect the perturbation. If we can make the donut much bigger, that two kilometre ring becomes relatively less uh, yeah. uh, in proportion to the overall area. Yeah. Conscious, um, Dominic, that we've left you in, in the sidelines there for a minute. So um, we'll talk a little bit about kind of the history of the Badger Call and some of the key moments maybe in, in kind of the evolution and how the government has, has treated it. But any um, specific thoughts on that rationale that basically if the call is to be tested and scrutinised and presented as this is the way forward or not, it sort of needs to happen in a very rigorous um, format and a very extensive kind of aggressive format. Well, you know, what, what are your thoughts my on view that? is that the, the coal was fatally flawed from the beginning and it doesn't have public support and it's bleeding political support quickly. And I think James 
is aware of this and I would hope would, would be concerned by it. I think the first thing is you weren't testing badgers from the beginning. The government said it was too expensive to post-mortem and test. You know, the randomized badger culling trial killed around 11,000 badgers, spent 50 million pounds of taxpayers' money, went for nearly eight years as, as, as a research project. It was the most in-depth field research, peer-reviewed piece of research ever undertaken to try and find an answer to this question if large-scale culling could reduce bovine TB in cattle. And the independent scientific group by John Bourne and Rosie Woodruff and others that were involved in, in, in overseeing all of this research and data, um, when they came back and, and gave their, you know, recommendations to the Secretary of State, David Miliband at DEFRA at the time, that they said that, you know, basically badger culling will make no significant impact on lowering bovine TB in cattle. And the best way of moving forward with the policy was by cattle-based measures. That's improving your TB testing systems, which we know have been not good enough and are beginning to get better, get on top of the biosecurity and movement controls, risk-based trading, all the things that the government are now talking about all these years later and have been too slow to apply. Um, it was David King. Interesting enough, David King at the moment is sort of, you know, rattling the cage of the government over failures on COVID. He's got a lot of, you know, I think justifiable concerns, politics being played with the science, poor decision making. But David King came in and ripped apart the randomized badger culling trial with a small team of individuals he put together two weeks work to rip apart eight years work went to an EFRA select committee and undermined publicly John Bourne and Rosie Woodruff to say that he felt that there was a justification for going forward with badger pulling policy. He was the chief scientist at the time, so he had influence, obviously, in government to the highest levels of the prime minister. And said that, you know, if you did put in hard barriers, you could deal with the concerns about perturbation risks that James has raised, and on that basis, the cold policy should go forward. And that's what made this political. It should have been dead and buried after 15 million pounds and 11,000 badges. It should have finished. It did not. Because, you know, in opposition, David Cameron saw the opportunity politically to pick it up and run with it and say, we'll put it in our manifesto. The NFU jumped back up on it and said, fine, we'll take that because, you know, we've got David King saying that the RBCT is fatally flawed and we should go forward with it. And the liberals who formed the coalition because the Corys didn't get the majority had a lot of MPs in the Southwest who are also wanting to see action taken because of the concerns they had about badger populations and bovine TB. And on that basis, it went into the coalition agreement on page 62, wherever it went. And this crazy policy started to go forward. First year, it was put on hold because, you know, the great sort of statement of Owen Patterson saying that the badgers moved the goalposts because no one was certain how many badgers there were and how many you should kill to get the desired effect. And that's been a problem all the way along because the government have never been able to estimate effectively how many badges we have. Do we have 370,000 badges? Do we have 500,000 badges? Well, that matters because if you start pushing this animal and killing it in the way that we are, and this should concern James and all the veterinary industry, it's an ethical decision. You are pushing an animal that has protected status to the verge of potential local extinction. And we're seeing anecdotal evidence, and more than that from parts of the country now where culling is being going on, that badgers are beginning to disappear. That's why we have a complaint before the Berne Convention, a very strong complaint, to say that if you continue to cull animals in the way that we are, we could remove them from parts of the country where they've lived since the Ice Age. And the other tragedy is that it was a decision, a political decision that Owen Patterson made with Peter Kendall, the president of the NFU at the time, and I presume the BVA signed off on this if they were involved in the discussion, I don't know, because I knew people within the NFU at a senior technical and research level that wanted test data. But it was a political decision not to post-mortem those animals from the beginning in that four-year trial and actually understand exactly the level of disease that we had. And I know for a fact 
that Patterson and people around him didn't want that data published because they knew it would make it very difficult to justify the expansion of this cult and the expense involved as well. And that's been the problem. So throughout this cull that we've now killed over 103,000 badgers to date, plus probably another 60,000, 70,000 will go through this year, we've only tested around 920 of them, which the government were forced to do in 2016 from across various parts of the cull zones. It took them 18 months to release that data. And when they did release it, it only showed around 5% of the badgers had TB at a stage where they potentially could spread it to other badgers and possibly cattle. And that is in line with the RBCT data as well. Not only that, the government is sitting on a roadkill test survey data from the University of Surrey, Nottingham and um, Liverpool, which again, we believe, shows a low level of disease in badgers, including in high-risk areas, which they're not releasing because, again, the results are not convenient. And this is the problem all the way along. If you want to create a policy to destroy a protected species in this way. And we'll come on to the ethics because we have a big issue about the cruelty, which I think the BVA is sitting on the fence about the use of controlled shooting. And I must bring this up. It's terribly important. But if you just even put that aside, you have to be certain that the animals you're killing have a level of disease to justify their removal. And I find it astounding that when I have discussions with farmers and the NFU and others at times, that they say to me, well, it doesn't matter if there's a low level of disease. We just want them all removed because that will mean that we've reduced the risk of them spreading it on. It's like a scorched earth type policy. And it's tragic. And it, it worries me greatly that the veterinary industry is sitting there thinking, actually, this is acceptable. I don't think ethically it is. Now, the other issue we must come on to here is the use of controlled shooting. You know, we have an independent expert panel that was put in for the first year of the Badgical in 2013. And it looked at the use of controlled shooting. Controlled shooting was brought into this because it was a cheap way of killing badgers. There was always this idea that this would be a farmer-led policy where the government wouldn't be paying out huge amounts of money for our civil servants to do the killing effectively. And on that basis, they needed a means by which they could see if they could kill badgers as they come up out of the sets, baiting them and shooting them at distance with high-powered rifles. It's never been done before. There's lots of people that kill wildlife. James knows that around the country. They'll kill deer and other species. Some of them are very good. Some are not so good. But to cull badgers was going to be difficult because they're low-squat muscular animals. They don't go down easy with one single bullet. So there was an independent panel of experts put in place for the first year to look at this. And they came back with a study report that was quite shocking. It showed a significant percentage of badgers took over five minutes to die of multiple bullet wounds, organ failure, and blood loss. Badgers disappeared and were never found, which means we could actually be killing far more than are actually being accounted for by the actual cull contractors themselves. The independent panel made suggestions and recommendations, serious ones about improving techniques and monitoring, and said it wanted to keep in operation to oversee it. This report was inconvenient, so Owen Patterson basically pretty much ripped it up, didn't act on it, and disbanded the committee. We took it to the High Court, we did judicial review, but we weren't successful because the judge claimed that the government were going to act on the recommendations of the panel, and that was fine. Well, since then, We've killed nearly 103,000 badgers. The level of monitoring has all but disappeared. The British Veterinary Association a year later came out with a considered decision, which I think was right, to say that they felt that controlled shooting was cruel and ineffective and shouldn't continue. But they basically, year in, year out, signed off on a massive expansion of controlled shooting to the point that nearly 65% of the animals killed today had been by this method. So this is not ethically acceptable to me. I don't think it should be ethically acceptable to James or anyone in the BVA. I think it shames the veterinary industry that this is happening. But I know if the BVA pulled its support from the use of controlled shooting, 
The policy would be left to trap these animals and shoot them. It would be far more expensive, which would then bring into play the value of actually trapping and vaccinating or releasing them. And that's an absolute scandal as well. So, you know, there are some serious, serious problems here about the ethics, about the, 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 the science and the politics behind this policy. And there's no getting away from that. There is no getting away from it at all. Yeah. James, what would you say to that? Firstly, that, you know, those sound to me like pretty damning statistics in terms of how many badgers we've actually tested. Um, and despite having a fairly large number to test, uh, we haven't tested to find true incidents of TB. And secondly, can you talk a little bit about the ethical um, methods of killing? Yeah, with pleasure. Um, I'll take them in that order then, um, Sean. And I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm not here to, um, you know, sort of justify the decisions that were made in the in the way that the badger colour has been set up. But I will explain it as I understand it, which is simply to say that, um, you know, this was not ever intended to be a case of saying that we needed to only um, cull infected badgers. We needed to cull in areas where there was a very strong correlation between infection in badgers and infection in cattle and high numbers of badgers absolutely right but it was never about taking out the infected badgers it was about bringing the population down to a level and as um, dominic has highlighted you know the burn convention um would completely prohibit you know the um annihilation of a, of a of any species in an area um, and so that was never the intention. And certainly um, in the farmers that I speak to, and I do speak to farmers on a, uh, if not daily at the moment while I'm working with BVA, then certainly a very frequent basis. Um, you know, they're not interested in getting badgers um, removed, obliterated from, uh, you know, from the countryside. What they're interested in doing is trying to bring those um, numbers down to a level where those interactions between badgers and cattle um, don't happen. And also work down to a level where uh, the disease doesn't spread as, as rapidly as it has done between badgers. So we end up with a smaller and healthier badger population. I think that's the goal of uh, the culling effort that's being made at the moment. Those two goals to reduce the spread into cattle and to end up with a, a sustainable and healthy badger population. We battled very hard when we were putting our policy document together to um consider um where we would where we would position ourselves on this and you know it was not a given when we opened this policy document that we were uh you know where we were going to come out on the whole topic of of culling badges and we took evidence from um people on on all sides of this uh discussion including within our own veterinary circles we had um one sitting member and a couple of visiting members to the group from the British Veterinary Zoological Society who traditionally have sat on, on the opposite side of this debate from, from British Veterinary Association and perhaps from British Cattle Veterinary Association as well. And we walked together, we listened together and we talked together. And we ended up uh, working through the Dubois principles of um, wildlife control and and they exist so that you can start to apply an ethical framework to the idea that you're taking a lethal intervention with one species to benefit the other and asks a number of questions about uh, how, how and whether that can be sort of ethically justified and i think it's worth noting that you know the very first one of those questions is can the problem be mitigated by changing human behavior and 
you know, hence you know, the huge amount of our paper and our, and our asks for the future on being about um, continuing to develop and enhancing the changes in human behavior that, that we already see. But we actually felt that, you know, you can't get the whole way there just by doing that. The evidence would not take you in that direction. And so we ask, you know, are the harms serious enough to warrant wildlife control? We would say absolutely. The animal health, the animal welfare, the public health, the economic and the social harms associated with the current prevalence of TB in the UK um, warrant the application of this control. And then we get on to the bit that Dominic was just raising, you know, is the desired outcome clear and achievable and will it be monitored? And here we are with with discussing uh, outcomes in two different ways, because we can measure that certainly in population um, numbers. And I think that one of the things that's been learned through this whole process has been how to more accurately estimate uh, badger populations, perhaps not on a countrywide basis, but certainly within a locality. So we can begin to think about what the upper and lower limits are of animals that should be culled in order to um, achieve the, the goals of that particular cull. Um, quite different to saying that we're going to monitor the um, incidence of TB in those animals. We're going to use cattle then as the proxy for monitoring how effective that's been. And we would argue that actually the papers that have come out recently have been in line with what we might expect. So that those areas that have been through a number of years of, of the uh, badger cull have seen a roughly expected, um, in some cases greater than expected, in some cases slightly less uh, reduction in their uh, TB incidence in cattle. Um, those that are a couple of years in haven't started to see that benefit yet. And I don't think that that's um, out of line with what we might expect. So then we move on to does the proposed method carry the least animal welfare costs to the fewest animals? And this is why, um, you know, as, as an association, um, we would say that, you know, killing of an animal, if it's undertaken humanely, is not per se a welfare harm. Now, you know, happy to sort of be, be challenged on that but what we're saying there is if you are going to cull an animal it has to be done in a way which is um, as humane as possible as rapid and as free from avoidable pain and distress um, as possible and uh, the evidence is that uh, cage trapping and shooting is the method which provides least pain and least distress and that's why we've um, backed that and supported that there are other aspects to this as well, but they haven't really come up in our conversation yet. But I would encourage anyone to have a look at those Dubois principles from 2017 and just, um, you know, try and apply those in their own mind to, to the interventions that we're taking. Yeah, I just yeah. I want I just need to come back and ask James, though, you know, about this controlled shooting position you have, because you rightly have a position where you've raised concerns about the effectiveness and humaneness of controlled shooting. But, you know, you are allowing that policy to be massively expanded to kill more badgers. That, that sort of odds with itself, surely. How do you, how do you balance that in, in the sense of where the BVA is? Because if you told the government you weren't going to support it and it needed to be removed, they would then have to go to cage trapping only. Now, we can then debate as to whether that would in turn open the door for more vaccination. I think it would, and that would be a good thing. But I don't understand why the BVA don't take that position and tell the government you won't support any new licenses that allow the use of controlled shooting? 
Dominic, I think we have to recognize the limits of our influence. We regularly and, um, you know, consistently remind, um, you know, government ministers or anybody who we're speaking to about this, this topic that our position is that we support cage trapping and shooting. And, you know, we do support the idea that culling badges is a part of the tool, toolbox that we need to bring into play uh, if we're going to get on top of TB and cattle. So we start from a position of saying, you know, we support this as a concept. We support this as a method of doing it. Um, I think that for us to sort of dig our heels in and refuse to engage in conversation because uh, government were using a different um, culling modality would actually reduce uh, opportunities to positively impact on whole areas of this discussion, including the discussion around where badger culling is appropriate. And also, as I hope we're going to come on to, what the sort of exit strategy from that uh, policy might be and how we might as vets help to uh, influence and prepare the landscape um, and I mean the, the uh, emotional landscape rather than the physical landscape for that uh, for that change. Yeah that was going to be my next question um, to you James and, and Dominic as well chime in here if you want but there does seem to have been a recent turnaround and I see it you know the reason I've asked you both on to the podcast is I've seen a massive um disappointment and outcry almost amongst um, anti-cull um, community that the government has turned around and expanded cull zones massively uh, at a time where we were expecting to be kind of winding it down. So to you, James, I'd, I'd kind of ask, maybe you could clarify, what are the aims of the current scheme as it stands now? And, and what does the agreed endpoint look like in this climate? Sure. And I think um, you know, you ha we have to look at what the government actually came out and said, which is that, you know, they anticipated a situation where they would you know, not be wanting to continue to license new calls on an ongoing basis. So mm. you know, there's two sides to it. I think firstly, um, to halt a call midway through or you know, in, the, in those first few years of it would have the capacity to really be quite damaging in terms of the disease risk of the disease spread in that area. Dominic highlighted for us earlier on um, some of those areas which are only one or two years into the call and are not seeing any benefit from that at the moment in terms of the impact on cattle. Indeed, in uh, a couple of those places, we've actually just seen a, an increase in the, in the uh, incidence in cattle um, over that short period of time. So it could be argued that, you know, ethically it would be very difficult to just say well hang on we've you know we've we've called so many badgers but we haven't done enough to make a difference but we're going to stop you know i think that there's mm. you know we can have that discussion but i think ethically that would be really challenging to um to overcome um and you know so then you look around at some of the other areas and i think the sort of caveat that they've given themselves within this and, and again i'm not here to kind of um do the government's work for them on this on this on this position but yeah no problem you know, the, the position, the, the, the caveat they've given themselves is that where they see um, a demonstrable requirement or a demonstrable benefit that could be had from um, a badger call, that they retain the right to sort of, to, you know, to license further ones. And I mean, you know, my area of the country is um, is, is Staffordshire and Derbyshire. And you'll be aware, I'm sure, of the uh, ups and downs uh, in terms of the challenges that have come and gone in terms of that cull over into the Derbyshire area there. And, and I think that's a really good example of where the government have taken taken a second look at that 
um, you know, it was at the very 11th hour in 2019 where they said, hang on a minute, we're not, we're not prepared for you to undertake this cull at the moment. And they've taken a very long look at that and, and come back with, with the answer in the end that, yep, we can see that, you know, in this area, something like, uh, you know, two thirds of, um, of outbreaks in cattle um, are attributed by the disease report form, which is filled in, you know, by a veterinary surgeon, somebody who's putting their, their signature on the line based on the Royal College Code of Conduct. So they're signing to, for stuff that they, um, you know, they believe to be true, that is within their sort of scope of experience, within their scope of knowledge. Um, and they're willing to put their name to that. And, and we, we end up with roughly two thirds of cases involving badges in this area. And so, you know, I think in, in that instance, that's why government said, well, we are going to continue to roll this out into areas where it's required. That doesn't take away from the fact that our long-term goal is to think of doing something different, which is where we're continuing yeah. to engage with them. Okay. And what are your thoughts on that, Dominic, with the, the kind of rollout of new counties and expanding the coal zones? Well, I think it's a mess. It's, a, it's a, an awesome mess, to be quite frank. Um, where do I start? Well, you know, you go back through the, the Sir Charles Godfrey review and its recommendations. Well, that took forever for the government to basically respond. You know, it took nearly 18 months for them to put a response out to Sir Charles' report. And, you know, the BVA fed that into the Badger Trust RSPCA. We all did. And I think, to be fair, I think Sir Charles did a pretty good job in difficult circumstances of coming up with a proper TB review strategy that cost half a million pounds of taxpayers' money. But as ever, because it was inconvenient in many of its parts, it was stuck and buried in death for a considerable period of time. When it finally did emerge before the pandemic in March, um, I think the government um, misled to a large degree Parliament and the public uh, with a press briefing exercise, uh, which led to headlines in the press saying they were phasing out badger culling. It was an end uh, of this strategy um, that they were moving, you know, a seismic shift, I think the Guardian was saying on the back of some of the press uh, statements they were getting from DEFRA on on the policy. And that was reflected and, and very positively for the government that they were moving to an end game, which, you know, cautiously we accepted and said we thought was positive and for the right reasons. Um, you know, the, the justification being that, you know, that they led them to the conclusion that cattle-based measures based uh, were the best way forward, which is what the RBCT said all those years earlier on, of course. And then that you had a, a situation where you could open the door to move forward properly with uh, cattle vaccine trials and you would expand badger vaccination. Um, one key element of it was that, you know, you'd come off these supplementary coal licenses and then start to vaccinate. Now, we started this seeing this go wrong actually in May because the government issued seven new supplementary coal licenses and all of them were for culling. None were going into vaccination. Uh, we should remember the supplementary culls um, are a terrible area of this policy. They have no legitimacy. They're basically local control orders given to farmers. They have one day's training, no proper monitoring, and they can mop up and kill badgers at will for another four years. That could take the overall level of population from 70 down to 90%. So it's horrible. It shouldn't have been supported by the veterinary industry or anyone who cared about the science. Um, and yet there it is. Um, so we had the supplementaries issued, no move to vaccination. And then we waited on the final announcement. And when it came, you know, we had a leak two weeks before. Someone with some, um, you know, obviously conscience in my view, natural England leaked the whole list to, to, to me and others. And, and we got that in the, in the national press. And it clearly stated that the government were going to go into 11 new areas uh, of licensing, including Derbyshire, including Oxfordshire, including Leicestershire, including Warwickshire areas, particularly where there was badger vaccination taking place 
it was a, a slap in the face. I think a complete misleading of the public. It was a huge U-turn, but it's something that they chose to do. Uh, the other interesting development we saw, of course, is that the NFU went insane that, you know, I'd spoken to Carrie Simmons and Downing Street, she'd spoken to Boris Johnson, Johnson had been speaking to Zach Goldsmith, and then Johnson intervened twice to stop the Badger Cull in Derbyshire. Yes, he did. He did do so. It was in the judgment. We know he did. But he did for the right reasons. You know, I laid it out very clear to him why it was that that call shouldn't take place. You know, there was good rounds saying it, you could kill badgers that would be vaccinated. There was no justification in, in, in our view for moving forward with a new expensive coal policy in a county where you were pioneering vaccination with support of the, of the wildlife trust. There was a huge effective local campaign and petition. There was an election coming up. You know, this was a political issue, of course, but the prime minister at the end of the day had to take a decision and he took it the right one. That's why that license was stopped. But then the government pay out 57,000 pounds in compensation for the coal contractors because they were effectively laying their traps effectively been told they would get the license before they got the license. So we have a huge problem with all of this. And then the government backtracked again. Johnson's moved off and lost interest. He's got bigger things to worry about. And we've got this expansion of the policy. And on the day it was announced, you know, the Secretary of State went missing again. He didn't even want to talk about it. So he left his chief veterinary officer to come and speak alongside me on Radio 4 Farming today. And she was reading from a, a, a script, obviously. She didn't feel comfortable with it. She was trying to justify culling in low-risk areas like Cumbria and Lincolnshire. Now, James has talked about the need to sort of look at areas where there is a disease rate. Um, I'd question the mapping. I'd question the results coming back. I think there was a very good study in Derbyshire from the Wildlife Trust tearing apart the APH data that stated that there was such a high level of disease in, in, in badgers. It's a very good piece of work. It should not be dismissed. I hope, you know, BVA representatives have looked at it and will consider it, but it does shed serious concerns on the decision-making process in APHA and the role of vets and the role of farmers in mapping and giving data back to justify the culling of badgers. Yeah. Today I see reports from Derbyshire that you've got, you know, badger, badger cages right up against, you know, nature reserves in the county. I've also got reports on my desk today that actually there is culling going on in um, Nottinghamshire. It wasn't even on the list of licenses, but we've got a document showing that actually the government approves adjacent culling in other counties. That's going to be a massive problem, and it's heading for the press as well, James. I don't know what your view is. Do you think it's right that we're culling badgers in a county that the government hasn't even stated it's culling badgers in? Well, again, we have another wildlife trust vaccination project. This is a disaster of a policy. It absolutely is. It doesn't have justification scientifically. It's costed probably by the end of this year 17 million pounds of taxpayers' money. It is hugely cruel. And James, you've told me that basically you have compromised the BVA to, to maintain influence over the wider policy. It's, it's a reasonable position to take. I can understand what you're saying. But from what I'm reading, you're telling me that if we want to influence the future direction of this policy in a wide range of areas, we've had to park our concerns on the ethical issues around controlled shooting. Now, that, that's, that's a decision you've taken. But I think that reflects how bad this policy has got. Everyone is compromising all the way along. And, you know, these compromises are costing not only a huge number of badges in terms of them being destroyed, but I think the whole credibility. And just to finish on one other point. You know, Ian Boyd, I've got to know quite well since he left DEFRA as chief scientist. And to be fair, me and him have debated this issue at times over the years, and we've been on different sides of the fence. But I think he's been more outspoken since he's left. And, you know, he was on a, a panel on Bird Fair that I, I, I was chairing with Chris Packham and Jane Goodall and others this year. And I asked him this point. I said, if you were still chief scientist in DEFRA, would you have signed off those 11 new licenses? 
licenses. And he said to me, well, Dominic, I don't, I still differ with you. I still think there's a, a real need for us to look at this reservoir and disease in badgers, as James has been saying, and we should, you know, cull badgers effectively to, to reduce it. But he says to me, we've really, we're fighting the wrong battle. He says the livestock veterinary industry needs to change. We have too many cattle on farms in Britain today. And that industry is struggling. It was struggling before COVID. It's definitely struggling as a result of COVID, as we've seen liquid milk markets disappear. And we know they're not coming back. Our city centres are staying empty for a long, long time. And now you've got Brexit coming up with no trade deal in place, which could be hugely harmful to the farming industry. And then you've got the climate change emergency that we face, which Ian's very, very quite rightly focused on. We have too many cattle. We've got to deal with the emissions. We've got to deal with the carbon problems. We've got to move to a plant-based diet. People are beginning to do that. That doesn't mean everyone becomes vegetarian and vegan overnight, but we've got to be realistic that we have to change. If farmers are going to survive in this country, we need less cattle. And then, as Ian was quite rightly saying, we'd rewild the land as a result. Then we'd begin to deal with the carbon emissions. And the other point he made is if you do that, then I'd be able to say to ministers, if you have less cattle, you have less disease. You have less disease, we don't need to be killing badgers like this. And that goes right back to the start of this discussion. Why did this become a problem in the early 70s? Because when we joined the European community, we industrialized our cattle industry. It grew. The herds grew. The numbers of animals kept inside for over six months grew. The nature of moving animals through cattle markets grew. Selling young cattle and rearing them and moving them around to supplement low incomes in this industry. So I think we've got to take a much broader view about the future of farming. You know, I've painted you a picture tonight of a policy that I think has corrupted government, corrupted certain parts of industry farming and the veterinary sector going back 40, 50 years. I'm not blaming any individual here. I think there's incompetence. I think there's negligence. I think there's deceit at the heart of the policy. And I think it's shameful in many ways. But you can't blame any individual government or any individual. It's just happened. It's occurred. It's developed over time. But we have to find a better way out of it. And I think that Badger is a canary in the coal mine. I think if we can resolve this, By looking at the whole nature of the industry we're trying to to, to support and protect public health and wildlife, then I think, you know, Ian's right. I think we could find a solution that's far better than this. Yeah, thanks for that. I think I, you know, we could have a whole nother podcast on the impact of industrial agriculture and and how that's changed the landscape and and nature and and everything. Um, But we would be here all night and I'm conscious of time um, that we're running up to kind of an hour and 15, an hour and a half. there's a load of points there, James, that you might want to come back to. And, and I think the, it's a good point now to talk about maybe the science of vaccination of badgers. Um, we'll talk about vaccination of cattle in a, in a little bit as well to sum, sum up. But vaccination of badgers, it does seem almost like a, a disappointment um, to a lot of people. Well, definitely a disappointment to a lot of people that in counties where the vaccination strategy was being rolled out and, and looked at, that they've uh, gone to calling now. So maybe you have some thoughts on that, but then let's talk about the science of badger vaccination. How effective is it? Um, you know, what are the challenges and so on? Yeah, sure. Uh, now I think, uh, you know, I'm going to come on to that. I would just like to make the point though, that I do not believe that uh, BVA is compromised uh, in its position. We are able to uh, point out that we support all of the tools being used in the control of this disease uh, and amongst those we support badger culling uh, and because as Dominic has said because we didn't get that reassurance in the second year of the pilot that the free shooting was being carried out in a humane uh, and effective way or 
humanely and effective enough for the standards that we had set for it. Um, that is not something that we support. I don't see a I don't see a compromise having been made there. But to move on to your uh, badge of vaccination question, I think um, we would have loved for the oral badge of vaccination to have been a success and for it to have been demonstrably, um, you know, a, an easy and a straightforward way of rolling out a way of, of sort of mass vaccination of the badger population and would have led to some really helpful uh, evidence, I think, on uh, whether or not that could actually then begin to impact on the disease in cattle. Um, that's not where we are, sadly. There have been a huge amount of effort made into finding a suitable carrier for getting an oral vaccine into badgers, which actually translates into some degree of um, immunity within that animal. Uh, and they've been unsuccessful, and it has not been for want of trying. I've, I've uh, seen the investigation into it and the, uh, the sort of documents for a number of those trials, and it really was pushed very, very hard. At some point, you have to just say, maybe this isn't going to be a goer. And I think that's where we are with that uh, particular avenue of investigation at the moment. So you come back down and to And just say, to jump in, James, the, the oral vaccination is one that was hoped would be kind of easy to roll out and get broad coverage of the badger population with baited vaccine. Isn't that right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you think that, um, you know, you could end up in a situation where just, you know, chucking a few kind of peanut baits down a down a, 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 a badger set uh, was going to vaccinate the set because they would all eat it and it would vaccinate them all and, and we'd all be happy. I mean, that would just be that would be a lovely outcome in terms of, of um, being able to roll out vaccine in a, in a widespread way. We're not there. Mm. So we're faced with the situation of needing to uh, to catch individually and to vaccinate these animals. And the work that uh, Andy Robertson in particular has reported on um, would suggest that if you can get to roughly a third of the population um, with you know, within any population, then you get to a situation where you're reducing spread. And as, as Dominic mentioned earlier, you get into a situation where there is potentially a hangover, if you like, of that um, uh, vaccination effects onto the next generation as well. And what I think is really interesting when you think about vaccinating against the mycobacterium, I said right in my opening comments what an amazing kind of bug this is. And one of the things I find amazing about it when you think about vaccinating is that one of the things you do by putting a vaccine in place is you extend that period between being infected and becoming infectious. So hopefully to longer than your life lifespan. So effectively, you may just die with the with the bug in you, but you've never actually kind of caused any harm with it. And you know that's that's sort of one of the great attractions, I think, to vaccination. Where I come back to is saying, despite all of that great evidence, we don't at the moment have any understanding of what that does to TB in cattle, and that has to remain our focus. You know, there are farm species. We're not taking uh, massive interventions with any other wildlife species to try and reduce or alter disease levels in that particular population um this has to be able to uh, demonstrate some sort of social economic um uh, and zoonotic risk benefit to uh, to a farm species so that's our call is to to get out there and actually uh, undertake this work in a, in a meaningful way so that we can see what impact it has on cattle to come back to the point about vaccination happening alongside culling there was a consultation which Dominic will be aware of. I'm sure he, like the British Veterinary Association, uh, will have responded to it earlier this year, asking for 
um, a feel, because nobody's got any absolute science on this, but a feel for what would be right, what would be the right zone to put in place to say, you know, we're vaccinating over here, we're culling over here, we should have this uh, this bout in between where those neither of those interventions are taking place. And the goal there, of course, is to say that we end up with a, a nicely vaccinated and protected population over here um, and, a, and a smaller healthy population over here uh, after the culling effort has taken place. Um, and I think, you know, we, We've seen what the government have said coming back from that and what they're considering as an approach to it. But certainly you know, what we do not anticipate happening is either of two things, either having a significant vaccination area uh, alongside a cold zone uh, and running absolutely up to it and those animals intermingling um, throughout both of those uh, work efforts. But also we don't anticipate the flip of that, which would have been... Uh, for me would have been that you know a person in a proposed cool zone could vaccinate one badger and simply say well there we are then you know this isn't an area that's suitable for culling anymore because there's a vaccinated badger in it and i'm taking that to its extreme but that would have been the sort of extreme position of that so it's about trying to find that sensible way forward i think of being able to say there is a sustained and demonstrable vaccinating effort going on here um that shouldn't be interfered with by the sustained and demonstrable culling effort which is going on over here. And I have a genuine question, actually. Who is vaccinating badgers at the moment? Primarily, it's wildlife trust groups um, across different counties. So Oxfordshire, uh, Warwickshire, Nottinghamshire, Badger Trust and wildlife groups and some volunteer groups as well. Um, right. Derbyshire has the most um, developed and successful, I would say, in terms of public funding that's come in through the EDGE scheme because the government have been funding uh, badger vaccination, the EDGE scheme, since 2015. There was a um, period of time when there was a shortage of global TB vaccine, so they stopped for a while, but that's obviously no longer a problem. Um, interesting enough, actually, in the response to Sir Charles Godfrey review buried in there, James, I don't know if you've seen it, there is a, a few lines where the government does actually refer to badger vaccination in the Republic of Ireland, which is taking place, as you know, after a long period of intensive culling in three counties, where they say they do believe there is some data that shows an interesting correlation between reduction of cattle uh, TB. So that there is a recognition, I think, within government that maybe there is some interesting data coming out of Ireland. Um, I agree with James on the, on, on the issues around the oral vaccine. Um, it was a disappointment, I think. You know, when I spoke Particularly, I remember having some meetings when uh, George Eustis stepped out of government over a year ago um, when Theresa May was still prime minister. Um, we talked quite openly about culling issues, and he said that he'd really pushed very hard during his time as agriculture minister to keep funding for the oral vaccine developments. But clearly, there are problems with that. And, um, you know, it might well be that that's not going to deliver that silver bullet that everyone was looking for. But, you know, there has been an interesting study published recently, DEFRA supports study looking at logistics of badger vaccination. I think there were three areas there that we've been really trying to look at was that part of the problem with vaccination is the, is the communication of its scientific benefits. There is some good peer reviewed research which it hasn't been communicated from DEFRA. And we've talked with civil servants about this and they accept it. And again, these are political decisions at the heart of the policy. It wasn't communicated out. So a lot of pharmacists are very cynical. I also am very concerned that many in the farming industry and the NFU and, and at certain levels are very hostile to, to badger vaccination. And we've worked very hard with farm meetings and 
you talk to people in Derbyshire, they've worked extremely hard or in Oxfordshire building relationships with farmers, having meetings, discussing it with them. And often you'd find that, you know, NFU representatives would come along and others and actually undermine the arguments publicly. And that's, that's sad and that's disappointing. I think we've got to get more um, of a focus on coming together on, on this issue. And I think vaccination mm. of badges can definitely be it. What made the Derbyshire issue so controversial, of course, with the Prime Minister's intervention and stuff I've been doing and others have been doing. But ultimately, you know, there was a, a strong line of defence to say we didn't want culling in that county because so much had been achieved by the Wildlife Trust that had brought farmers and landowners together in a spirit of mutual trust and confidence, which I know James will realise is so important in his area of work after so many decades where this policy has become so polarised. And yes, people yeah. like me get passionate about it. But you understand why? Because, you know, often I have to go up against people who will claim anything under the sun that I'm crazy because I might want to stand up for badgers or I don't understand the science or it's they don't understand the importance. I have a good understanding of a lot of these issues from my days in government and industry, as well as being in conservation. But equally, I can see something that fundamentally is flawed, and I think we have to try and address it. So, you know, my view is that there are more tools, and non-lethal intervention is something that we can really begin to develop, both in cattle and in badgers. There's a huge amount of goodwill to do it. And, you know, we have an economic crisis on the whole, in a, in a living generation in this country at the moment, we've got millions of young people who are going to be desperate for work. I get young people all the time come to me seeking to get involved working in veterinary areas or farming, landowning, conservation. You know, there's a huge amount that could be done with setting up a new sort of national nature service. We've been talking with the Chancellor about that through my wider role in Wildlife Countryside Link. And I'd like to see money put into getting young people to support badger vaccination projects. I'd like them on farms, working with the Wildlife Trust and badger groups and others, working with landowners, helping vaccinate badgers. I think it's good for them to do it. I think they'd learn about disease control, about farming about wildlife conservation, I'm sure James would agree with me. That would be a positive thing to put young people to work doing. And if it's a logistical issue, because often this is the debate we have, people say to me, well, you haven't got enough people to do vaccination. It's just too complicated. Well, let's be honest. A lot of the animals we are killing are being cage trapped anyway. So the actual logistics are exactly the same as for vaccination. The only difference is, is you're sticking a shotgun through the cage and blowing the badger's head off effectively. Whereas you're in another situation, you're vaccinating it, releasing it. That is the stark contrast between the two. And I think we've got to come to terms with that and understand it. So, yeah, I, I do think there's more research needed. James is absolutely right. But people like Rosie Woodruff have been working really hard to undertake study research down in Cornwall to look at what we can learn about badger vaccination. She's been crowdfunding for that recently. It'd be good maybe if the mm. BVA could get behind what Rosie's doing and ZSL and say, actually, we want to learn more about this. Let's get some funding into that. That's a challenge I'll give to you, James. Maybe you, you need to look at it and see, let's actually help get some study data here because there are some people that really want to work on this. You fully understand where I'm coming from, I'm sure. Yeah, you've partially answered this, Dominic, but I was going to close uh, the discussion, <laughs> go on for ages, but um, we do have to finish up. I was going to ask, you know, what does the Badger Trust want to happen short and long term? You've answered that to some extent. I, 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 I maybe just bring that. sides together because I really appreciate James coming on tonight. I think it's been a thoroughly interesting discussion. I think he's been very articulate and very clear about, you know, where he sees this issue. But we don't have enough of these debates, really, and we need to do more of this. We sort of got into our trenches a bit and dug in. Uh, I think we've got to find some middle ground here. We've got to work together. I think the, the great tragedy of the Badger policy in 2012, 2013, it was largely cut up between the National Farmers Union 
and the, the government in secret. It didn't bring in the conservation groups and organizations at the start. And I think if they had, I think we could have found a better way. Particularly, we could have had more badger vaccination projects in place running. We would have had that scientific data that James is looking for now to tell us as to whether that was beginning to deliver a reduction in bovine TB. And if it was as a non-lethal intervention method, we could have rolled it out and got more broader support. So I do think we've got to work on things like that. Yeah, like a lot of conservation issues, uh, it does divide people. And then we just have a, a them and us mentality, don't we? Yes, very much so. And I think, you know, yeah. we, we can't afford to do that. And I think there's so many issues today where we've got to find common ground. And I'm fascinated by the, what Ian Boyd is saying, because, you know, I think he's gone through the whole system of being a senior advisor to government um, and now sees that broader picture. And I think what he says about the need to look at our intensive farming systems and how we could change for the future. I'd like to see farmers have a better future. But I know that means that you do have to adapt to change. It's not an easy thing to do, but we're all having to do that, particularly at the current time we're living through, that's for sure. Yeah, great. Thanks a lot, Dominic. Um, to you, James, then the same question. You know, what does the BVA think is kind of the best way forward or what do they want to happen over the coming years? I think if I could encourage your listeners to, to do anything uh, uh, off the back of listening to this webinar, it would be to go and pick up our uh, policy document. I'm incredibly proud of it. I would be, wouldn't I? But, you know, if you haven't got time for all 72 pages of it, just have a look at the first five pages, because what you'll see in there um, really encapsulates the BVA position, which is that, you know, for a very long time, TB has been considered, um, as Dominic has just said, as a bit of a kind of them and us. And I would actually say that there's a different them and us in this as well. There's government versus everyone else as well. Um, and, and I think that's got mm. in the way of trying to actually think about this as a disease process on farms and to tackle it in just the same way as we might do with BVD or with environmental mastitis or anything else that we might be used to dealing with in our cattle. And, uh, you know, yeah. so we've we've turned this around. We've said, let, let's have a look at what we need to do to improve those relationships and to make sure that they're all working in a very positive way uh, towards uh, controlling the disease. And we're not just saying these things. We're already going out and acting on some of these uh, recommendations. So you know, we're in the process of trying to set up those meetings. I have one of them today. Uh, in conversation with government about how can we bring our respective vets closer together to be um, overcoming some of the hurdles, be they data transfer, whatever, uh, to make sure that we're all pushing in the same direction. Yeah. When it comes to controls in cattle, you know, we're asking that uh, we think about the novel testing techniques that are out there. Consider what is the impact of cattle feces, for example, as a disease spreading um, material. We don't really understand that well enough at the moment but could be a significant part of the reason that we we see these chronic breakdown herds and never really manage to get on top of them um, do you mean with slurry on the land james or uh, potentially on the land and and certainly you know um you know local contamination as well you know i think um, yeah yeah there's, there's a number of different aspects to that um and we yeah. also ask for uh, research to be carried out into the disease in other farmed and non-farmed species as well. So you, know, you come down to our five recommendations for research at the end, and all of them are focused on the idea of understanding this more holistically, of being able to move to a position where this isn't a discussion. And I appreciate tonight our discussion was targeted to be around the idea of uh, the policy of culling badgers. But I really hope that what we've produced in this document is something that can move that discussion forward into a way which says, with or without culling badgers, 
there is also an awful lot more that we can do and an awful lot that we can all do together. Uh, and that's where we would like to see both the profession, uh, politicians and the farming industry uh, working together over the forthcoming years to make sure that we hit that 2038 eradication goal. Yeah. And I guess the the hope is that um, the cattle vaccination will be a big leap forward in, in kind of solving the problem. I think the cattle vaccination has the capacity to be a, a, a significant factor when it comes to reducing that R number. And my goodness, how often have we talked about R numbers in the last six months? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but here we go again. You know, the, the R number for TB is definitely made up of lots of different components. And in this case, they're not about children going to school or mums and dads going to the pub. They're about uh, interactions between cattle. They're about cattle movements. They're about wildlife uh, interactions with the cattle. They're about different testing techniques. And by bringing all of them together, we'll push that R number down. Um, and, Brilliant. and that's where we want to be. Brilliant. Thank you. Dominic, any closing remarks before I, before I no, call it a day? I think the BBA document is a good document and I welcome James and the colleagues input on it. I, I wouldn't agree with everything in it, but there's definitely some movement there and some good stuff in there. So it's well worth a read. And yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I'm not, you know, slurry definitely is an area that we do need to look at more. So I fully agree with that. And it is in the, in the Godfrey review and government have recognized that. And I think at the end of the day, you know, as, as I said earlier on, we do need to find common ground and we do need to treat this disease as being a, a major social economic problem for farmers. But I think that farming industry is, is not static. It's altering and changing. It has a great deal since 2013 and it's got many challenges and opportunities ahead as well. So we're not looking at this in a sort of static playing field situation. Everything is moving. And I think we, we need to consider that as well. But ultimately, I'd like to just finish on that point is that, you know, we have to be very cautious when we start to destroy a wild animal like the badger in such large numbers without being certain about the overall impact on its ability to repopulate. That's why we've gone to the Bern Convention, which does remain important because as we've left the European community, it's our founding um, treaty effectively in Europe for protecting habitat and species. And we think we have a strong case to say the government have not done enough monitoring on this. They're not really looking at the long-term impact of badger removal, both on the badger itself, but other non-target species and the broader environment. And I don't want to see a badger that where we lose 50,000 on the road every year, because we do, we think, you know, it's a most common wild species killed on the road. We have large-scale badger persecution still goes on, huge problems with planning and building and development that impacts on badgers. And, you know, as Sean says, um, James, sorry, was saying earlier on about the, the climate change issues most definitely is having an impact on badgers' survival, particularly in the spring. So, you know, this is an animal under pressure from many sides. We're the most nature-depleted country in Europe. We can't take it for granted that we can continue to, to eradicate this animal on the scale we are without impact. So that's something that I really want everyone to think about. Okay. Thanks so much, um, both of you, for coming on and for having such a, a great, respectful and informative discussion. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, I hope that the listeners have found it just as informative and it's managed to kind of clarify what is admittedly a very uh, complex topic, whatever your personal views on it. So thanks again, James and Dominic. Um, it has been 
really, really great uh, to hear your views on it. Thank you, Sean. Thank you very much for hosting us. Thank you, guys. No problem. Thanks, guys. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast, um, I'd encourage you to like, subscribe and leave a review, if you would, on your podcast listening platform of choice. And if you would like to support the ongoing costs of producing the podcast, you're also more than welcome to on ACAST supporter link in the description below. So with that, it's over and out and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.